Welcome to the Marketer as Philosopher podcast. Our goal is to help you completely re-envision your role and your work as a marketer or entrepreneur. Now, here are your hosts, Flint McLaughlin, joining us from the rugged mountains of Wolf Creek, Montana, and Daniel Burstein, joining us from the beautiful beaches of Jacksonville, Florida. So I was watching session four, Flint, and I was thinking about this great story. I you know, worked at IBM at one point in my career. I worked with them, and there's this great Thomas yeah, Watson my story. sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to try to ride the elephant when you work with IBM. But. So Thomas Watson, you know, he was a, you know, the guy who made IBM what it was, this, this great IBM leader. It was and, amazing. Uh, yeah, so it was right around the time of, you know, they'd just been through the depression, they'd been through all this stuff, and, and Thomas Watson was taking this, you know, approach that others didn't think he should take. They were trying to remove him from the company. He was building up inventory because he saw a boom coming, but they had to sell, they had to sell. So one of his top salesmen, it was a million dollar contract, which at the time, you know, this was the 30s, 40s, whenever it was at the time, huge contract, huge, yeah. couldn't close a deal, walks into Watson's office, and you know, Watson, his famous motto was think, walks into Watson's office, tells him all the mistakes he made in the deal, all these mistakes. And he tendered his resignation. He said, hey, I know we needed this deal. I made these mistakes, I'm resigning. And Thomas Watson ripped it up and he said, I just paid a million dollars for that education for you. How the heck can I let you go? <laughs> There's an Andrew Carnegie story like story. that too. But I just want to stop everything. Dan, you're not hinting at anything. This is not your resignation because <laughs> Here's we a million still dollar mistake need I made you. And, and I'll, you, know, you can make a $10 million mistake and I think we still would need you. But keep going. Well, I love that story because I thought this, you know, and, and I, I wrote you an email about this when I saw session four. This is a quote that jumped out at me because I just loved it. You said, embarrassment is often the price of marketing wisdom. <laughs> what made you think of that? My own uh, terrible track record. And what I mean by that is, you know, thousands of experiments where you float a hypothesis and discover that that hypothesis might give you a powerful learning, but it's not the one that moved the needle. It was through this that we began to understand how to develop the heuristics to give us eyes to see with, customer eyes to see with. And uh, and I can tell you that over and over again, I've had to be honest. And when I'm honest, I realized I was wrong. We're talking about that before this podcast, remember? I wrote this very long email. So far, the response rate is not high. <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I'm holding out, hoping that the experiment will produce what we're looking for. Either way, the learning is always more valuable than the lift because with the learning, we produce the ultimate lift. But keep going, Dan. Well, I think that's the challenge, too, of being inside the company and having that company wisdom because I read that same email, Flint, and I was like, this is a pretty good email. <laughs> Can't wait to see the, the results. But that's what brings us really to the topic of today's podcast, which is data. Yeah. So data, the data we get, right, it forces us to, you know, like you, you said in an earlier podcast, uh, you don't need to be humble. You just need to be honest with yourself. And if you're honest, you're going to get humble. And data is something that the data. brings us that honesty and brings us that humility, right? Data that doesn't overwhelm you will humble you. Data that overwhelms you, well, it just, you just, it just depresses you. You drown in a sea of information that has no wisdom. The key here is to understand that the power of data for the marketer lies in the way you structure it so that you can predict behavior. If you can't predict behavior, then the data's value is to accounting. We're reporting with it. We're perhaps getting metrics. But even marketers' metrics that report on something that happened historically 
its power is so that you can use it to adjust your hypothesis and get a different or a better set or to duplicate a set of reactions. Marketers don't need to be insecure about their data. They need to simplify. And then after that, they need to simplify. And then after that, they need to simplify. And in the end, they need to be able to structure it in a way that enables them to predict customer or prospect behavior. And if you're listening, before you leave this podcast, we're going to go through five questions step-by-step step to help you simplify. And those questions come when I refer to session four. It's session four of MechLab's new course to help you become a marketer philosopher. You can check out session four at mechlabs.com slash course. But when we get into this, Flint, you refer to this overall as the prospect minds model. So that's really the goal here. We're trying to get into someone else's mind, right? Well, we need to model what matters to the prospect. We need to model their decision process. In the end, we're seeking, and by the way, this is on the other end of fielding a landing page, studying the data, and running experiments. Ultimately, sustainable competitive advantage lies in developing a robust customer theory. This is a theory around how the customer will choose and why the customer will choose your offer. But you can't just start with that. That's a culminating set of learnings. So you start with a tentative model of the important elements of their mind. And that's where this critical piece is important. And Dan, I just want to say this because we'll get into it. But the first three of the fast classes, the sessions, were all about preparing the marketer's mindset so that they can get to this set of questions with some clarity. Once they have these questions answered, they can set their objective. And once they have their objective, they can build a plan around the eight micro yeses that are the power, the undergirding, the architecture, the structure of the most successful messages, the kind that lead to conversion, to metanoia. But I say that so that you see how all of these puzzle pieces fit together. And if you've been taking these classes, you may wonder, what, how do I cash this in? Our live stream sessions help us do that. But ultimately, I need to get you through the foundation. And this is part of laying the foundation. We've spent three sessions trying to help you understand yourself, your role, your work. Now we're going to start to move into the prospect's mind, but hopefully doing so now with a new set of eyes. You know, every marketer faces this challenge of how do I make sense of the of data to do this? We have so much data. So one of my favorites, you know, writing for Marketing Sherpa, I get endless uh, emails yeah. from, you know, PR reps and and PR reps. I got I love those PR folks. We need them. We need them to get those good stories. But let me say, when it comes to data, when it comes to metrics, they have this fallacy of the, the big number fallacy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And here's one of my favorites. I was working with this uh, PR rep and they did a great job on this campaign. And they said the campaign had, I think it was like 11 billion impressions. And I was like, okay. And I was like, wait a minute, 11 billion impressions. Aren't there 7 billion people on earth? How with everybody <laughs> on earth twice? Or how did this go? And he explains like, no, 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 no. Here's how PR metrics work. So let's say we get an article, you know, into the New York times. Well, the New York times has 20 million subscribers. So there's 20 million impressions, but I'm thinking, well, 20 million people didn't see that article just because you got it in there. You know what no, I mean? Yeah. So this is what we do with our with our numbers, with our data. We just like, we like big. The marketers right? Isn't that the way the marketers like big? self-deception. And at the heart of much of what is wrong in the Western culture is the desire for scale. The lust for scale blinds us. Small, focused is better. Quality over quantity is better. And that's why you can take vast amounts of data 
or incomplete sets of data and structure it with these five questions so that you have a single picture of your customer's mindset. Dan, let's help people try to understand what that's like. Well, let's look at the, well, the first question I'm going to read has got a very good word in it, serve. And I think it's the antithesis of what I was just talking about. This kind of big number fallacy where we have to see like, we've got all these big numbers and we're doing really great. Right? The goal here with the data is to serve. So the first question talks about selection. Who can I serve better than anyone else? So Flint, what are we looking for in our data to help with that selection, help understand who we well, can serve better you, than anyone let else? Let me give it context. Because if you're going to field a value proposition that has force, and we measure the force of a value proposition in the lab, and we'll teach you how to do that. It's around four conclusions. But if you're going to field a value proposition, the why, then you've got to know the who. Because you can't build a forceful why for everyone. So you're looking in the data at the people who say no, not just the people who say yes. And you're not just looking at the people who say no. Let's make a smaller subset. You're looking at the people who say no but shouldn't. Now, it's easy to rule out those that might not be a good fit for your product. But the ones that fascinate me are the ones that said no, and I know I have the best solution for them. Why did they say no? And so, as you start to work through your data sets, this is where you want to drill down. And by the way, you don't have to do this with vast quantification analysis, sometimes you can get on the phone and get answers to these questions. Sometimes you can look in your chat logs. I love chat logs for this. Sometimes you can go into customer service. And most of all, if you're the CEO of an organization, big or small, and you're trying to understand these five questions, I suggest that you take some shifts on the phone yourself. Answer customers talk to customers, help solve their problems, and you'll discover that the mind, which is the problem, by the way, that computers have still been unable to overcome, the mind can synthesize insights that are hard to get through uh, the standards of deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning alone. Yes, there's uh, two different types of thinking, and I won't get into that, you know, but ultimately, you will find implications. And so trust yourself and don't be frightened of vast amounts of mathematic computational power. Instead, if you have that capability, use it. But you know what? Your own mind can help you form a point of view if you get close enough to the customer. Yeah, when it comes to selection and getting close to the customer, I mean, one great thing I always look for is how people self-define themselves, how they talk about themselves. So like you said, customer service is a great way to do that. Online reviews are really awesome too. So, you know, I started in the, when the internet wasn't such a big thing and when you're really trying to have to get into the customer's head, right? But now you don't have to drill into their head. You don't have to try to only just buy them in a focus group. They're sharing everything publicly online often in forums, on social media, and the way they talk about it, they might say, you know, I'm a parent and, you know, in relation to your product or, you know, I'm this type of worker, I'm this title, I'm this, you know, or I'm a, I'm a Jaguars fan or whatever it is. So I, what I found when you're talking about selection is, yes, there's, you know, the type of things like the demographic there's they're this age they're they're you know located in you know these regions or these types of things but the way people describe themselves you know what i mean i am i am a car enthusiast and blah 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 You're, that's a form of psychographic uh, ultimately 
The most important point to walk away with from this question is that you need to rule out a lot of people you can't serve well. Focus on the ones you can serve well and understand two things. Understand how they view themselves, and that's one, and two, how they're wrong about how they view themselves. That is where your deepest insights lie. But we have five questions, so reach out to me with <laughs> if you want to talk about that point more. By the way, if you get that answer, you're setting yourself up for that value proposition, which will come later. And uh, let's talk about the second question. Let's talk about the second question because I think it, it ties into that as well. And the second question is about direction. And this question, so for everyone's listening, this can help you with your data. This can help you with your own life as well, too. <laughs> like yeah. when you get off of, stop listening to this podcast, ask this question about yourself. Business you might come to some is surprising real conclusions. life. Business divorced from real life is an abstract deception. You know, we have to understand that we are really building relationships. So, Try not to separate business from life. The more you do that, the more distant you become from the truth about your customer and yourself. But go ahead, Dan. Uh, so direction. Where, what does this person move towards or away from? <laughs> what does this person move towards or away from? So I, I've focused on a person. I've studied the people who are sort of putting together the picture. In question one, I was interested in who said yes, but also who said no that should have said yes. I'm interested in how they see themselves and what's right about that, but also how they see themselves and what's wrong about that. Now I'm moving into an important way to understand how they move into an answer. And you'll find that there's a predominance among people. Certain people tend to move away from risk. Others tend to move towards opportunity. You see it in professions. You see it in life choices. Many, many entrepreneurs are frustrated with their attorneys because their attorneys tend to move away from risk and they call them deal killers. And uh, that may be fair or not, depending on the circumstances. On the other hand, entrepreneurs tend to move towards opportunity and sometimes they don't fully appreciate risk. We're not here to judge these people. We're here to understand what is their predilection because if we know that, it we can zero in our messaging so that it appeals to their direction. So selection works closely together with direction. And as it does, the picture becomes clearer. You know, I'm often, often asked with content marketing, what should I, you know, what should brands write about? What should they create content about? And it comes down to kind of probably in parallel with what you're talking about. Really, all human needs come down to two things. You either accentuate the positive or you eliminate the negative, right? People either have a goal they want to reach or they have a pain they're trying to avoid. And when you sit down and look at your product and really think through, what does it do? So I'll give you an example, the car industry, right? So cars, you know, are somewhat of a commodity, but take a brand like Volvo, what, is, what did Volvo do, right? They were famous for safety. They were famous for, like you said, Flint. They were, people were wanting to move away from risk. Yes. You know, but then you have, you know, the Tesla or the Corvette or, you know, what's the goal of that? It's to go zero to 60 in 3.1 seconds and move towards something fun. The exact opposite of that Volvo buyer. Well, you know, this is an episode where we think philosophically about what's underneath all this. And I, I've been accused of being a scientist, but really I'm just a... I'm just an experimental philosopher. And I will say this, Dan, often the move away and the move from, the negative and the positive are identical. So the difference is not in the physics, it's in the psychology. 
It's in the person's own self-understanding. And so I can talk about, uh, let's just make it simple. I can talk about an item that solves your problem in such a way as uh, maybe uh, it feels positive. Or I can talk about the lack, the void, and how the same set of decisions will help complete that void or help move you away from lack. In either case, we're saying the same thing, but in different ways. And this we're doing not to manipulate people. Some do that, but out of respect for who they truly are and the best way to communicate to them. It's and it's a great thing to experiment with. We have a case study on marketing Sherpa from a few years ago, so I don't remember exactly, but it was an antivirus software. And antivirus is software, you know, traditionally, what, what's the main message there? It's to move away from risk. But they tested a positive message and it actually beat the negative message. I was really surprised. I surprised everyone at the antivirus you have software. To test I was surprised this. as well. Yeah. This is again, these five questions form the foundation of something I call the customer theory. Marketer, please listen. Entrepreneur, please listen. Nothing is more valuable to your business than an accurate customer theory. And with the first question selection and the second question direction, that picture is forming. Then with experimentation, to your point, Dan, testing, which we'll teach later in the course under optimization, you refine this over and over again until you know how to communicate better than anyone else to your customer. So you were mentioning the framework of micro yeses uh, in the beginning of the podcast. So let's get to question three, orientation. Where is this person in the micro yes series? So you had a question today on the uh, live stream about where does the inverted funnel start? And I think maybe it would be good to kind of answer that question again on the podcast to kind of talk about the inverted funnel and where it actually, where the customer actually starts getting into the funnel, into the micro yes. Okay, many of you have heard this, some of you haven't. So I'm going to give you a three minute intense summary of many years of research. People aren't falling into your funnel, they're falling out. Gravity is not your friend. Indeed, if you're going to really get the picture in your mind right so that you can get the work in your life right, you need to invert the funnel. Think of it as appearing upside down, and most, if not all, are falling out. And you've got to somehow overcome this problem. Let gravity represent distractions and problems in the marketplace and technology errors and interruptions and all the reasons why people don't complete. Today, if two, in fact, if a hundred go into our funnel and two come out on the other side, we sometimes think we're doing well. That's abysmal. So the real picture, the better picture, the picture that will enable you to, to reach a whole new level of results is this. See the funnel in your mind as inverted. And with that, see people climbing up and they climb up. They don't, they don't drop in and they only come up one micro yes at a time. And there are eight magrias in every message that you've got to understand, but there are many more overall. They are sets. And each microyes represents a move up against the force of gravity. The force that resists gravity, that overcomes it, is the value proposition. And, you know, it takes a whole string of microyeses to get to the macroyes. That's where they experience conversion and become a customer. But it only takes one no to stop all progress. So keeping this in mind, you have to be certain that when they hit your landing page, you know where they are in the micro yeses. The funnel is not your channel or your web page. The funnel is the cognitive fabric of the mind stretched around the medium. And it begins, this funnel, 
in the person themselves as a need arises and becomes a want. And they might think, I'm looking for, uh, you know, I want to save money on insurance. And that thought provokes a behavior. And that behavior may get them to go into a search engine and type in something like cheap auto insurance or a comparison chart, auto insurance, some term. When that happens, there's a series of micro yeses. And what you're trying to do as a marketer is not just get them to say yes. You've got to get them to say yes every single time. And to do that, you have to be very careful that the the conversation is timed properly. We control the chronology in the mind with the geography of the page. And I have often seen huge uh, increases in conversion occur when we realize, oh, this person is earlier in the cell process or later in the cell process, earlier in the sequence of thought, the micro yeses, or later, and we time the headline to connect to them right where they are. Does that answer the question some for you, Dan? Yeah. So, you know, when I think about the talking about the micro yes series where I'm writing an article right now about website conversion rates, because we're often asked, what is, you know, the average website conversion rate or the correct <laughs> yeah. website conversion rate, right? You know, five, right. that's the answer. <laughs> and so we've got, you know, 17 different sources in there from all different types of websites, B2B, B2C, and the conversion rates range from 1% to 61%. And the difference is where the people are in the micro yes series, It's right? exactly it. So the 1% is a tourism company in London that does tours. And during the COVID lockdown, not surprisingly, their conversion rate was 1% because where were people in the micro yes series? They were not thinking like, okay, I'm ready, you know, to, to go sure. on a tour. They were thinking like, you know, when will, you know, tourism open up in two years? The 61% was, uh, is a B2B e-publisher and they said for their really high intense content, like for a buying guide, they can get a 61% click through on a link because, hey, people are coming at that buying guide. They're, you know, pretty close and, and ready to buy. And so I also think one more piece of data, I'm, I'm writing a, a guest post and looking at average conversion rates. So those were like two specific companies, average conversion rates. Yeah. So there is no answer to that question. It depends on, again, the context. So you're, that's why you see the range, right? The truth is the what is easier than the when. It's the when that makes fools of us all. I can give you an example. Uh, I'll say a what. I think our economy is headed for trouble at some point. I think there's a lot of people that would probably agree with that. We're trillions of dollars in debt and many other things are getting worse. But the minute I put the win on it, I'm setting myself up for embarrassment. It's the win that makes fools of us. So, marketer, you're always so focused on the what. Slow down, reflect, become a marketer philosopher, and get serious about the win that's where you need to drill down because if you time your message to coincide with the place they are in the sequence of thought, you'll see a stronger response. So you heard it here, investing <laughs> advice, the stock market is going to go down. Is that Someday, is that yeah. Someday. I mean, even a, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Right twice a day, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, all right, let's like a question for justification. Why would this person choose my offer over every other? So this sounds familiar to me. It sounds like value proposition to me, Flint. Well, it is not, but it's the kernel. It's the beginning, right? So we said selection, get the right person, figure out who you can serve best. And then we said, what's the second word, 
direction. Direction. You know, how do they process opportunity and risk? And then we said orientation. Where are they in the sequence of micro yeses? And now we're moving to justification because let me tell you something. If you can't justify your existence in the evolutionary marketplace, you will soon be extinct. Some of you listening to me right now are surviving on pockets of ignorance because you don't have a good answer to the why question. Later in this course, we're going to teach you how to frame word for word your value proposition. But I want you to know that we're in the early stages in this podcast of thinking about a page and how to improve its performance. And so before we even have the value proposition, we've got to start towards it. And we do this with that spade why that digs down beneath how and digs down beneath what. And the question you need to answer is, so this ideal person, this one I've selected, why? Why will they choose my offering over that of another? And you can fill in your competitors. Or you can fill in the other way, the other place that dollar may go. Because until you can start with some sort of tentative answer to that, you're not ready to design a page. You're not ready to fix a page. You've got to get from orientation into justification. And I'll just mention this. When you finally get a value proposition, it will be a culminating reason. It will be a carefully crafted argument. And until you have that, don't spend a dollar more on your marketing. Well, and that justification and selection go hand in hand because the justification to one person is very exactly different right. than justification to another. So if you're looking in your data, I mean, one place I really encourage you to look, if you're doing any paid search, anything paid with keywords, look at the different keywords and see how they're converting because those keywords, what you're doing essentially is selection. You're choosing different people based on those different motivations. And that justification has to change based on who you're choosing. Actually, think of data as behavioral traces. Some of you on the phone right now need to understand that all you're doing is tracking. I live in the back country of Montana and the snow is on the mountain. And uh, one of the ways that we, <laughs> we have a mountain lion problem. You will never see a mountain lion until it's too late. And, uh, and the only hope you have is to wait till snow flies. And then we start to see traces that that lion leaves in the snow and we can backtrack to his den. Now, I tell you that because if you don't, he'll come in and he'll get our dogs and other things. I mean, they're very dangerous. The point I'm trying to make for you is that your data, sometimes it's like that mountain lion. That person is elusive and hard to, hard to discover, hard to understand, but they're leaving traces in the search engines. They're leaving traces with every tiny movement up the, the, micro yes funnel. And what you have to do is trace those tracks, follow them back into the mind so that you can get answers to these questions. And let's take a look at the, the final one. What do you do with those answers? I think five stylization, how can I best communicate to the person? And so when we look at these five selection, direction, orientation, justification, stylization, I mean, some marketers they just start with five, right? They're just <laughs> starting with the message. What, what's the idea? What's the copy? What's the headline? Point. What's the offer? Yeah, that's, that's smart, Dan. He's so right. Most of us skip the first four and jump into the fifth. And by the way, we style our offer after what other marketers do. So we speak with marketing speak. The more expert we become as marketers, the less expert we become as consumers. We lose touch and we use words that we would never use with a normal human being in a normal conversation. 
Stylization isn't just about transparent marketing or speaking with clarity. Stylization is answering a question. And that question is, is really at the, the root of that question is trying to figure out well, what's the best way to communicate to this person I selected. Because the why that you discovered under justification has to be communicated with a stylization that matches that works with, that's compatible with the chemistry of the person you identified under selection. Now, marketer, some of this may seem abstract. Get on the live stream because we're going to be cashing this in with examples. Watch as we ground this thinking. But this is, this is your opportunity to think deeper, much deeper. And when you combine these five elements, you suddenly get some sort of a snapshot. It may not be completely accurate, but it's such a powerful starting point. And then every interaction with your customer should start to refine your understanding, including your optimization and experimentation. Listen to me. Don't build a funnel. Build a self-optimizing system. Design the metrics the testing, and even the way you view your chat and customer service as a pathway into the mind so that these five components have, have more and more accurate contributions to your picture of who your customer is and how they think and what matters to them, what they're afraid of, how to speak to them, and why they would buy from you. Yeah, well, before we go, I just want to remind everyone listening, you know, this is hard, right? What we're talking about, it's really hard stuff. So I was going to give one anecdote where a brand really got this wrong with me. And I want to see, Flint, if you ever had an anecdote where you were on the receiving end of this and you said, well, they got these five questions wrong. So for me, when I was, I want to say 12 or 13 or something, I was, I was fairly young. I was probably a unique child in that I subscribed to like magazines and newspapers. I loved reading. And so because of this, I guess I got placed in a database. And so when I was around, I'll say 12 years old, I got an invitation to join AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons. <laughs> and at 12, I didn't know how database marketing worked. <laughs> I didn't know about these five questions. I didn't know the data people were going through. You were very mature. I got a card in the mail. You were very mature tickled. for your age. I mean, <laughs> I was very mature. Age. I was tickled. I was like, look, I'm, I'm, you know, has, has that ever happened to you for where you've looked it and is, you've received something? But all like, I'm going to tell you is watch fast class. I know you didn't, you know, you didn't set people up. You didn't know this, but watch fast class. I think it's four because I start with an ad served to me by LinkedIn. You have to see it. It's hilarious. And it shows you what it's, that even big companies get it wrong. What's more important though, listen to me, what's more important is that I know many small companies that have got it right. And I want to just make sure you hear this. It's not as simple as adding up the data math. It's more about synthesizing quantitative and qualitative factors. You probably feel insecure. You probably have holes in your data. You may be starting fresh with a new company and not have hardly any of the data from your own offering being put in front of people. But what you are doing is using the mind's magnificent capability to combine these variables. And if you program your mind, that is, if you aim it towards an understanding of these five questions, you'd be surprised what you might begin to do. You know, Steve Jobs used to say he didn't believe in research. He did. 
but it was his own brand of research. And Steve had a way of synthesizing market forces and data and seeing deeply into the mind to create products that we didn't even know we wanted yet, i.e. the iPad, and surprising us all. I say that to suggest that don't feel like this is beyond you. Don't feel like your data has to be perfect. Don't let your insecurities hold you back. Start by reflecting on these questions, going to the sources of data you have, developing a sort of point of view, and then with honesty and humility, allowing the interactions with customers, i.e., that's what data is, behavioral traces, allow those to refine your understanding. I think it begins with a desire, too. I mean, I like to call this customer intimacy. How can you improve your customer intimacy. So a challenge is, you know, I'll say, even when we're working in some of our backend platforms like marketing automation or CRM, it's easy to forget that these are real human beings on the other side of it. It's just numbers and data. I'll, I'll pull this list together. I'll pull this segment. I'll set up this automation campaign. But I like to think back, like you said, Flint, to that, that what, where, where do we all start? It's all that small business owner, that individual small business owner that has a real relationship with his customers, really understands them, really wants to serve them. I have, We're all versions of that, right? Listen, I've used this same thinking with Fortune 10 companies, and I've used it with startups. It doesn't matter how big your data is. Don't be overwhelmed or impressed by data. Those people have silos of data, and they don't understand most of it. It's much more important for you to actually feel the mindset of deep concern and care for the customer. And out of that genuine desire to understand and serve, you'll release within your own thinking uh, power that you don't know you have yet. I'm not trying to get, you know, mystical, but it is mysterious. I've seen people who, because they care so much and they try so hard to understand, they get more out of a little data than giant companies get out of their big data. You may be working in a giant company, and you may be very different. I could name to you right now a series of what I would call marketing heroes who worked in some of the biggest banks in the world. I'm thinking of one of the biggest banks. You'd know what I'm talking about. Her first name was Melanie. I can think of another one, Mark, in another huge bank, and, and inside of Verizon and other big companies, people that were different. You can be one of those people. You can be the marketer who is a philosopher who thinks more deeply and who cares more deeply. And you'll find your job yeah, more rewarding. And I'll tell you real quick, the things that both Melanie and Mark did from what I saw was they didn't just look externally. When you're in a big company, you have to look beyond the, the external. You have to look at the internal and how can I take this behavior and get it going throughout my organization. And so they looked also at their internal customers and how could they build tools for those internal customers, if their fellow marketers, to do a better job of this. Empathy is a superpower. Marketer, empathy is a superpower. Look at your data through the lens of empathy and you'll discover things and insights that you could not see before. Well, if you'd like to check out Fast Class number four that we discussed today, you can go to mechlabs.com slash course, M-E-C-L-A-B-S dot com slash course. It's all freely available, no cost, no registration. Just go there and you can see all the sessions. And Flint, I believe you're okay if people email you directly? F. McLaughlin, MC capital G, F. McLaughlin at mechlabs.com. I only have four emails left today, and I will have answered every single one that's come in. And I'm telling you, that's hard, but I do my best. And so I, uh, I appreciate your email. I learn from them, and I want to stay close to the people I'm trying to help also. Thanks all. Thank you, Flynn, and thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for joining us on the Marketer as Philosopher podcast with Flint McLaughlin and Daniel Burstein.